Let's begin this morning by opening to our text, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19 this morning. But let's read all the way to verse 24. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. For they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now this is the second therefore walk statement in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. The ESV doesn't translate the word therefore in verse 17, likely to, to kind of smooth out the English, and, and maybe they put it as, as just the word now, but the word therefore is there in the original. L- literally, verse 17 says, this therefore I say and witness in the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. And the word therefore goes back to the therefore in chapter 4 and verse 1, which we've already looked at, and that therefore goes all the way back to all the benefits and privileges of salvation. Because of all the riches and privileges and benefits of God's powerful and gracious salvation, therefore, walk like This. And last time that we saw that we should walk in unity because of our salvation. Here, we could say, in chapters 4, verses 17 to 24, we could say, walk in holiness. Therefore, walk in holiness. Look at verse 24 again. It says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness holiness, the the likeness of God, we we could call it godliness. In verse 20, the idea is of having learned Christ and his truth. In verse 21, Paul is talking about a walk that's consistent with knowing Christ, which again involves holiness. You see, salvation demands holiness. And holiness means devotion. It's, it's devotion to God, being devoted to Christ. And with that devotion also comes a separation from sin, a separation from the world, and a separation from Satan. And so that's what we're thinking about here is, is a, a devotion to God that separates ourselves from sin in this section. This is the holiness that Paul thinks is the worthy walk that, that is worthy of our salvation. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to focus on walking in holiness. Now, as we begin 
today, I, I want us to notice the emphasis here in this text on our thinking. Look at all the words that have to do with our thoughts and our minds. In verse 17, he talks about the futility of their minds. In verse 18, their understanding is darkened and there's this ignorance that is in them and there's a hardness of heart where the word heart there refers to the mind and the will and the affections as we'll see a little bit later on. Verse 20 talks about having learned Christ and learning again involves the mind. It involves thinking. Verse 21 talks about hearing and being taught. Verse 23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so walking in holiness involves really a new way of thinking. We need new values, new thoughts, new minds. We need new desires that are founded on the truth of God's word. You see, our thinking is more important than we often think. Our thinking is really the fountain out of which the issues of life flow. Our thinking is like a foundation of a building, and everything in our life is built on that foundation. And if the foundation is off, the whole building will be affected. And by thinking, what we're talking about here is the way that we process life. The way that we think about what's happening around us, the way that we think about our world and our universe and our lives and our situations, our circumstances. By thinking, we're talking about the way that we we meditate, not, not in some kind of Eastern way or anything, but the way that we think about, the way that we kind of process and mull over everything in our life. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the thinking. And this is what the Bible calls the heart. This is our our inner man, our hearts, our thoughts, our will, our affections, the control center of our lives. And out of this heart, out of this inner man, comes everything else. For the Christian, the heart is critically important. Our thoughts are so important because if we can learn to process life biblically, then we can respond to every situation in a God-glorifying way. And conversely, when we don't think according to the Word, we respond to life in unbiblical ways. And that creates troubles and difficulties in our lives. What's in our heart always comes out in our words and in our actions. It, it always comes out. We can maybe hide it at times, but it's, it's there and it, and it flows out of us. And besides that, God always hears every thought in our hearts. And if we want to glorify God, then we need to begin with a pure heart. You see, a holy life is the result of a renewed mind that's renewed according to the truth of God's word. Now, Paul begins here with the second, therefore, walk, really in a place we might not expect. You know, he's laid out the riches of salvation in chapters 1 to 3. And then in 4, 1 to 16, he told us about this built-in mechanism in the body which enables us to grow in unity. There was this kind of chain that, 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 that began with Christ And then it went to the apostles and the prophets who gave us the word. And then Christ also gave us evangelists and teachers to equip us for the work of ministry. 
And so there's this kind of chain from Christ to every believer. Every believer is gifted by Christ to do some aspect of this work of ministry which builds up the body of Christ. And this building up of the body of Christ was to continue until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's really the absolute highest attainment possible. And so perhaps we would maybe expect after all of that, after all of those really great things that Paul has laid out for us, maybe we'd expect him to go into some of the fine details of attaining this fullness. But no, Paul starts now at the very bottom, at the very lowest rung on the ladder. And he says, in effect, here's how to walk worthy of your calling. Don't walk like the world all around you. See, when we were saved, we were saved out of the world. We were delivered from the world, and now we need to learn to put away our worldly ways and live according to Christ. And so Paul starts at the very beginning here. This Ephesian church had been planted maybe 10 years ago, uh, but still Paul goes right to the start and he says, no longer walk like the Gentiles do. Now we read all the way to verse 24, but we're only going to look at verses 17 to 19 today. And this is the negative side of what Paul says here. This is how not to walk. This is how we should not live. This is what we're to avoid or what we're to stop doing and stop thinking if we would walk worthy of our salvation. And so this is what not to do If you would walk in holiness, we must not walk like unbelievers. And there's two commandments here, two ways we're going to call it, two ways in which we are not to walk like unbelievers. And so if you're taking notes, you would want to write maybe two ways not to walk as unbelievers walk. And the first way is do not think like the Gentiles or do not think like unbelievers in verses 17 and 18. And then secondly, Paul is going to tell us not to act like the Gentiles or not to act like unbelievers in verse 19. And so we could say, do not think or act like unbelievers. And this should be helpful for us on a a number of levels this morning. I think first it's going to show us very clearly what not to do and how not to be. You know, sometimes a, a negative example is is as helpful or even more helpful than a positive example. This is what we're not to do. This is the the picture of how not to be. There's ways of thinking and acting that don't fit with our salvation, and we need to be exhorted to stop it. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that way. We need to see sin for what it is and forsake it. We need to turn from it. But secondly, this will be helpful for us today because this text opens the way for us to put on the opposite of what Paul says here. And so if we're not to think and not to act like unbelievers, as Paul says, then we are to think and are to act in the opposite and holy ways. And I think it'll be helpful as we kind of go through this to see the opposite of what this looks like. If we're not to be futile, darkened, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, if we're not to be hardened and callous, then it follows that we are to be purposeful, Versus the futility of mind. We're to be enlightened in our minds. We're to have fellowship with God. We're to be wise with soft and sensitive hearts. 
If we're not to give ourselves over to sensuality and purity, then we ought to be pure and in control of ourselves. See, whenever Scripture exhorts us to stop doing something sinful, kind of implied with it is, is this, this urging us to do the contrary righteous and holy thing in its place. And we'll see that even more clearly in verse 20 and following next week, where Paul tells us to put off the ways of the old self and to put on the opposite Christ-like attributes. And really, that section really goes all the way on to the end of verse 32. A third thing that this text will do is it'll, it'll show us the depravity of man. This is one of the primary texts of Scripture on original sin, and it shows us what unregenerate man is, what unsaved man is. And so here is man before salvation described by the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us here exactly what unsaved man is like, and it's not really a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. It's important for us to have a, a biblical view of man, and Paul lays that out for us here when he tells us how the Gentiles are. You see, if you're a, a believer, then there's, there's something for you here in this text. And if you're here today as an unbeliever, this text will show you what, what you need to be saved from. And it'll show you the state in which you are and what God must do to save you from that state. And so my prayer for you, if you're an unbeliever, is that our Lord would convict you of your sin and draw you to himself that you might be forgiven. And so let's get into this then. Number one, do not think like unbelievers. Verses 17 and 18. Do not think like unbelievers. Let's, let's read our text again. It says there, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become, oh, uh, we'll stop right there. The first thing I, I want to point out here is that this really amounts to a command, and, and it's a solemn command for us. This I say and testify in the Lord. That, that's solemn. That's, that's serious here. Paul is giving a testimony, and the word there means to urge something as a matter of great importance. And so this is something that's, that's greatly important in Paul's mind as he, as he testifies what we're to do here. See, Paul is insisting on this. He's insisting on this, that we no longer walk a certain way. And it, this way is further described as the way that the Gentiles do. Now, who are the Gentiles? Who are Gentiles? Well, I think we know that. They're, they're non-Jews. They were the, the nations surrounding Israel. Nations is, is actually another translation of Gentile. Do not walk like the nations walk. I think that might be more helpful for us even. The Jews, for the most part, followed the law. And there were certain practices that they avoided. They, they, had, they had sins which they viewed as socially unacceptable that the nations around weren't sensitive to because they didn't have the law. And for these reasons, the Jews were typically removed from the wicked, immoral practices of their Gentile neighbors, although they also were sinful people and had the same nature as all other people. Now, Ephesus was in Asia Minor. It wasn't in Israel. And so Ephesus was a Gentile city. 
And what Paul is saying then is, do not walk like the people in Ephesus. These would be unbelieving people. That's another way to think about this. Unbelieving people who don't follow the Mosaic law. And so in more contemporary language, contemporary language, we would say maybe don't live like the Canadians live in the futility of their minds. Don't live like the Lucretans live in the futility of their minds. Now, I'm sure that some Gentiles would have been offended when Paul said this, if they would have been in the synagogue or in the, in the, the church service the day that this was read. I'm sure some Gentiles would have been offended to hear Paul say this. But the Bible does not apologize for this at all. It recognizes unbelievers for who they truly are and who we ourselves once were. We were once like this as well. And we're not to live like the unbelievers around us. The Bible is clear that man in his unregenerate state is depraved and sinful And as believers in Christ, we are not to be like them. We are to be no longer influenced by them. God knows unsaved man through and through, and his assessment is that man is corrupt. God's assessment is that man is wicked, that he is evil, detestable, abominable. And this corruption begins on the inside of man with our thoughts. It begins in our hearts. And again, this would have been offensive to the Gentile philosophers of Paul's day. You see, they prided themselves on their wisdom. And to suggest that something was wrong inside of them, in their minds, would have seemed really scandalous. And it's really no different today, is it? You know, unbelievers and even sometimes professing believers resist the truth about the depravity of man. They don't want to admit that man is as bad as the Bible says that man is. Man's pride wants to retain a high view of himself. But our text is clear. Paul testifies in the Lord that we are not to walk like the Gentiles around us walk. And then he tells us exactly how those people are. Peter said a very similar thing in 1 Peter 4.3. He says, quote, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's 1 Peter 4, 3 to 5. Peter says, you believers, you wasted enough time in those sins, and so don't do them any longer. But our text really goes deeper into the source of those sins. And Paul gives five ways here that we are not to think like the Gentiles. Five ways that we're not to think like the Gentiles. And then he describes how unbelievers think. And he says, again, you believer don't think like that. And the first one is do not think like unbelievers in the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds. Now that word mind there refers to the faculty of understanding, to the faculty of reasoning and thinking and deciding things. 
One commentator even said it refers to the total person, this word mind. And, it, and this person then is viewed under the aspect of their thinking. In, in the way an unbeliever reasons, thinks, and decides, that, that, the way that they do that is faulty. Their minds are subject to futility. Futility. And that word futility means emptiness, purposelessness, transitoriness. It's, a, it's sometimes translated vain. And so it's a, a vain and empty kind of way of thinking. This word futility is the word that was used in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. To translate a, an important word from the book of Ecclesiastes, that word is chavel. And chavel is translated in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity. And so Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the Greek translation of that is the same word here translated futility in our text. And the idea of vanity is the idea that life without God or life separate from God is empty and fleeting and it's like smoke almost, like you can't, you can't grab a hold of it. The minute you try to, to get a hold of it, it kind of just moves away and disappears. And what was happening in Ecclesiastes was that Solomon was trying to find satisfaction and purpose without God. And he came to see that that pursuit was vanity. It was empty. It wasn't something that he could grab a hold of. He couldn't be satisfied without God. He couldn't have purpose in life without God. He was going to die one day and it would all mean nothing without God. And so Solomon came to the recognition that everything was futility in this world apart from God. It was futility. And that kind of futility, that empty pursuit of the world is what Paul sees as marking the mind of unbelievers. They are constantly pursuing things that are empty and meaningless in the end. See, purpose and fulfillment and meaning and eternity can only be found in God. We were made to worship God. We were made to live for Him. But unbelievers seek the things of the world. They think, th- they, they seek things that are temporary instead of things that are eternal. We were made to worship God and enjoy Him forever, and seeking anything outside of Him is vanity. It's futility. But the unbelieving mind is set on anything besides God, whether it's riches, comfort, pleasure, whatever the self desires, the things of this world, the things of this time, the things of the here and now. And we are not to pursue these things. We are not to live this way. We are not to value what the unbeliever values. You see, God alone is to be our pleasure, our comfort, our satisfaction. And we're to live for God and his glory and anything else is futility. And so the first thing that marked the unbelievers was the futility of their minds. Then secondly, Paul says, do not think like unbelievers. And then he says their understanding is darkened in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. Now the ESV begins a new sentence here. 
But the original is, is really one sentence all the way to the end of verse 19. And the, the Legacy Standard Bible translates it more literally here in verse 18. It just says, being darkened in their mind. And they keep that sentence going. Being darkened in their mind. And the connection between being darkened and what went before is a, a causal connection. In other words, if, if we ask, why are unbelievers futile in their minds. Why is that? Well, it's because they are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding, and that's why they pursue these futile things. Now, darkness in the understanding, that represents sin and evil. And it also, at times in Scripture, darkness represents ignorance or blindness. And ignorance and sin really go hand in hand. Now, this is a different word here for mind, this this understanding in verse 18. And and it means thinking or the the process of thinking and reasoning. Genesis 6-5 uses a a similar word in the Greek translation of it in Genesis 6-5 where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually, And that word there, the thoughts of his heart. And it was evil. The thoughts of men's hearts, of men's hearts are inclined towards evil. They are darkened. And that darkness, again, results in futility. The believer, on the other hand, has had that darkness removed. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The believer has an unveiled face. The darkness has been taken away. Ephesians 1.18 also talks about this. The believer is talked about there as one who has been enlightened. God has shown his light into our hearts. God has removed the darkness in our salvation. And we are to live as children of light, which we'll see again later in Ephesians chapter 5. But that's not how the, the unbeliever is. They are darkened in their understanding. And, sin, and then we might ask, well, why are unbelievers darkened in their understanding? And the answer to that is in number 3, where Paul says, now do not think like unbelievers. They are alienated from the life of God. And so verse 18 again, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Gentiles or unbelievers are are alienated from the life of God. And there's another causal relationship here. We could translate this because they are alienated. And the darkness of understanding comes from this separation From the life of God. Now this is the only one in verses 17 and 18 that doesn't have to do directly with the thinking. But it's the, it's the cause here of a darkened understanding and it comes from the ignorance which is in them, which we're going to see next. And so we could ask now, well, what is the life of God? What is this talking about? The life of God. Gentiles are alienated or separated or excluded from the life of God. And and Paul here means unbelieving, unsaved Gentiles. Well, what is this life? This life is spiritual life. 
This is eternal life. And to kind of see what this is, I want you to turn to Ephesians. Ephesians, you're in Ephesians. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, and, and kind of beginning maybe verse 6 or so, John's describing the testimony that God has given about his son. And about halfway through, we'll start halfway through verse 9. It says, For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Verse 10, Whoever believes in the son... Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See what John's saying here? God's testimony is that eternal life is in His Son. And if you believe in the Son of God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, then the Son of God Himself, the testimony, is in you. And if the Son is in you, then, then you have God's testimony in you. If the Son of God is in you, then you have eternal life because this eternal life is connected or tied to the Son. And this life of God is, that, that Paul is talking about, is this eternal life that is found in connection with the Son of God. And then starting in verse 18 of, of 1 John chapter 5, John gives these three we know statements to, to kind of close his letter. And they help us to understand as well the life of God. In, in 1 John 5, 18, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, the statement in verse 20 really particularly applies to us, but it begins with the new birth, starting in verse 18 there, the one who is born of God. And so the saved person is somebody who's been born of God in verse 18, and and their source is from God. We know that we are from God, verse 19. And so their source is no longer from the evil one. They've been delivered from the evil one's power. And then in verse 20, the Son of God himself has come and given us an understanding that brings us into a relationship with God. And so the Christian is one who knows the true God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been joined to God through God the Son. And this connection is a a life-changing connection as really the whole book of 1 John describes. And this is what Paul calls in Ephesians being made alive together 
with Christ, Ephesians 2.5, being made alive together with Christ. And the unregenerate person is still alienated from this life. They, they don't have this life. They don't know this eternal life. And what Paul is saying then in our text is this. He's saying you must no longer walk as if you are separated from this life. As if, as if you don't have Christ in your life. If, if you are born again, if you are alive with Christ, if you have the Son, then live like it. Show it. Demonstrate it in the way that you live your life. That's what Paul's saying there. Now we could go on and ask another question and we could ask, well, why are the Gentiles alienated from the life of God? What's going on that they're, that they're separated from this? And the answer is that it's because of the ignorance that is in them. And that's number four in your outline. Number four in sub point four, if you're doing it that way. Do not think like unbelievers. They have an internal ignorance. And that's at the end of verse 18 or, or near the end, alien, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, ignorance is, a, again, another word for the mind. To be ignorant of something is not to know of it, to be unaware of it. And what they don't know is, is God, but it, it's not a mere lack of knowledge here. This is a willful and deliberate ignorance. You see, the unbeliever doesn't want to know. And I want you to go to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at this a little bit in Romans chapter 1 as we think about this ignorance that is in them. <clears throat> Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so men, mankind, suppresses the truth. Men suppress the truth. And this suppression, according to God, is an unrighteous thing. The truth that they suppress is the truth about God. They, they hold it down. They, they resist the truth about God. And, and this is a truth that they know, but they don't want to face. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You see, creation is a sufficient witness to the glory of the Creator that men are without excuse. They, they knew about God, but they suppressed that truth and they did not worship God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Very similar to what we see in our text. And so this is the kind of ignorance that we're talking about. This is what Paul is talking about when he talks about this ignorance. It's a, a willful ignorance that comes from suppressing the truth. And so if we go back to our text in Ephesians 4, it says, because of the ignorance, 4.18, because of the ignorance that is in them. 
And this ignorance then is, is in them, which is really a, a very interesting way to describe ignorance. And this signals to us again that it's not a lack of information, but a problem that's inside of man. This is something fundamental to the nature of man, that he is blinded to the glory of God. He is ignorant, but in a, a guilty way, in a culpable way. This is very much like we see in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the reason for man's ignorance comes out in the rest of verse 18, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. And so the reason for this ignorance of unbelievers is because of the hardness of their hearts. And this is what we're not to think like. Do not think, number five, like unbelievers. They have hard hearts. And this is another word for the inner person. And I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. And we want to, we want to look at this idea of the heart a little bit. I'm not sure if we've really ever done that. Um, but go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 12. The, the heart, biblically speaking, the heart is the control center of a person. And, and that includes their affections. And by affections, we mean what a person loves and what a person hates. That's, that's part of man's heart. The loves and hates. The will is also part of our heart. That's the, the faculty of deciding things, making decisions. That's, that's tied to our hearts. And also the thoughts that happen in our minds, those are our thoughts. And we see that especially in Hebrews 4.12. It says there, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so the Word of God discerns, it, it, it gets down to the level of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See that? There's the, the heart is the place where thoughts and intentions happen. The heart thinks, the heart intends certain things. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 9. Look at Matthew 9 and verse 4. It says there, but, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And so again, we see that the thinking comes from the heart. And again, go to Matthew chapter 15. Not only shows us here that, that thinking is part of the heart, but also that our heart is evil. That, that we have evil hearts from birth before our salvation. Matthew fifteen nineteen. for Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. There's the thoughts in the heart. Evil, evil thoughts come from the heart. And then here's all these other things that come from the heart. Evil, evil deeds that, that really begin in the thinking as well. Murder adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. And so the heart is our inner thinking, which is closely connected to our desires, what we 
treasure, what we value, what we love, what we hate. And a hard heart, then, is a heart that refuses to heed God's word. A heart that refuses to heed God's word. It's a heart that, uh, it's a, a, a heart with a, a form of thinking that disobeys God's commandments. And a hard heart really looks for reasons to disobey. It justifies disobedience. It comes up with reasons why it's okay not to heed God. That's what a hard heart does. And a hard heart is most often associated with unbelief. And that unbelief results in disobedience. And so Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Or Jeremiah 11 verse 8 says that, that yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And this is the scriptural picture of unsaved man. He or she has a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36. Like Pharaoh, they, they refuse to listen. A hard heart refuses God and, and resists God and his purposes. And so when Paul says in our text, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then he gives this string of causes going back to hardness of heart. He's telling us that that we ought not to be like that. Our heart ought not to be hard. And the opposite of a a hard heart, of course, is a, a soft heart. A soft heart, a heart that inclines the ear. A heart that obeys, a heart that listens, a heart that believes and follows and does whatever God commands. That's what, that we are to have as believers. And again, there's this, this causal chain here and it starts with a hard heart. A hard heart causes an internal ignorance and they don't, they don't want to hear and therefore they don't hear and, and therefore they don't know and they're ignorant. And that internal ignorance causes alienation from the life of God, a separation from the eternal life, a separation from the life of Christ shining through. And that alienation from the life of God then causes a darkened understanding, a sinful understanding, an evil disposition in the mind. And that darkened understanding causes the believer, the unbeliever to walk in the futility of mind. And they waste their life with vain pursuits and live for things that are not God and are not worth living for and are not eternally minded. And we are not to emulate this this Gentile walk that begins with hardness of heart. Again, we should have soft, moldable, pliable hearts. Hearts that tremble at God's word. Hearts of flesh, which is what we do have in our salvation. We should have hearts that learn the truth rather than resist it. And we should be intimately acquainted with the life of God, not alienated from it. And our understanding should be full of light and holiness, not darkness. And we should be living for God and His glory, not walking in futility of mind. That vanity that marks the unbelieving world around us. And we need to repent then of that, the mindset of the unbeliever and embrace the opposite mindset that comes from God. Now, the second way not to walk 
as unbelievers walk is number two, verse 19, do not act like unbelievers. And so first of all, we weren't to think like unbelievers. Now Paul says, don't, don't act like unbelievers. And I, I hope and, and pray that this is a command that would be totally unnecessary for us. Look at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is a description of Gentile unbelievers, but the command is for the church not to walk like this. And Paul obviously thought that some people in the Ephesian church needed to hear this exhortation. You see, he recognized that, that some of the Ephesians might not only think like an unbeliever in the secret recesses of their heart, but that, that they might also act like unbelievers in these ways. They have become callous. That describes the the Gentiles, the unbelievers in the world around us, they have become callous and it really summarizes there all that Paul has said about the hard heart and, and everything that flows from it in verses 17 to 18. I think you know what calluses are. Those are those hard spots that you get on your hands and maybe even other areas. If, if you've ever, you know, maybe worked with a shovel for a period of time, um, if you work with tools for a long period of time. Maybe you get blisters that first time or for kids, if you go on the, on the monkey bars and you swing around on the monkey bars, maybe you get those blisters, but after a while your hands get strong and they, they no longer, um, get blisters from that kind of work. Those are calluses that form. And it describes a, a hard heart that's not sensitive to God or sin. You know, if, if you have calluses on your hands, it's no longer sensitive to the hard work that would have once hurt it. In the same way, if your heart is callous, there's the, it's lost the sensitivity. There's a, there's a seared conscience that's, that's happening there, and the person has lost their sensitivity. Their, their conscience no longer pricks them when they do something wrong. And they're not even aware, just like a, a worker that's, that's got these calluses on their hands, they're, they're not even aware that their hands should hurt, that normal people's hands would hurt, but they're not aware of it because their hands are so strong and so calloused. A callous person feels no shame or embarrassment over their actions. The, these callous people have given themselves up, our text says, to certain activities. And the first one is described as sensuality. Sensuality. And this is a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct which violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. That's a quote from uh, a lexicon. A lack of self-constraint which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Another source said, quote, it is the performance of blatant acts with no consideration of personal standards or social sanctions. It's doing something openly with no shame, end quote. And the idea is of someone with no sense of public decency, no concern for their own respect, no thought about others, never mind about God, no thought about society. They've just given themselves over to all of these sins, which really should be shameful, which their conscience should be pricked over, which should bother them greatly as a, as a sin against God, 
but they're so hardened that they have no sense of it. It doesn't bother them at all. They don't even care. Very much seems to describe the society that we live in today because the sinners in Paul's day were the same as the sinners in our day. We all share the same human nature. Now, this sensuality refers to all kinds of immoral living, but usually it referred to immorality in the sexual realm. The men of Sodom had this characteristic when when they pressed the door of Lot's house, even though the angels had blinded them because they wanted the men in Lot's house. Paul feared that a, a sin like sensuality would humiliate him. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. And so Paul is worried that somebody in the church would do this and it's going to humble him because these people are continuing to do this sin. Jesus said in Mark 7, and we reread the parallel text in Matthew 15 earlier, but this is Mark 7, 21. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So sensuality comes from the heart of wicked men. And with sensuality, according to our text in Ephesians 4.19, is a greed for the practice of impurity. And impurity can mean just simply dirtiness or uncleanness, kind of in the physical way. But it it can also be taken metaphorically to mean moral uncleanness. And that's, of course, the, the way that it's used here. Moral uncleanness. Impurity was used sexually as well to cover a broad spectrum of impure, unholy acts. If you look at the text again in Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that word there, every kind of, shows us that, that we should really understand this term in the broadest sense. And so if you're here today and you're caught in any type of sexual sin... If you're practicing or even even really tempted to practice anything that would fall into the categories of sensuality or impurity, you need to know that you are acting like an unbeliever. You are not acting in that way like a believer. And these are grievous sins. These are sins that should make you weep. Not something that you should be drawn to, not something that you should desire, but these are things that, that, that we should be almost embarrassed that it would even be a thing in our church. These are grievous sins. These are the traits of unbelievers, not believers. And the exhortation for all of us is, do not or you must no longer walk like this. Sensuality and impurity is not okay. It's not something that you can kind of, oh, I struggle with that sometimes. Every once in a while, I'm tempted to do that. It's not okay. Not even in our minds, not even with our eyes, not in our thoughts, not in our actions. We must put these things off. That's what Paul is telling us here. We must put these things off immediately. 
And if you've, if you've tried and failed in, in these ways, then you need to seek help from another believer that can help you, or even from myself, a pastor that would love to help you and, and, and help you find victory over these sins. You see, brothers and sisters, God commands us not to think or to act like the unbelieving world around us. We are not to act like the Gentiles around us. We are to think differently. We are to act differently. We are to be different than the world because in our salvation, we are different than the world. We've been transformed by the grace of God, and now we need to live according to that transformation. And if you're here today and you aren't in Christ And if you don't have eternal life, and what we've seen then in our text today, it describes you. You might not be given over to sensuality and impurity, but but then again, maybe maybe you are, I don't know. But your heart is hard, and and really, as I talk to you and as I call you to faith in Christ here, I I would expect your heart to be hard. I would expect you to resist the word, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I would expect you to love darkness rather than light. I would expect futility of mind and that you wouldn't want to serve and live for Jesus Christ, that you would be blinded to his glory. I I would expect those things from you. I would expect you to cling to your idols rather than bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that every believer was once in this state and God is able to overcome your hard heart. And God is able to draw you to Christ. And so I would urge you, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, I would urge you to turn from your wicked ways and come to Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life. And if you are in Christ today, then we can rejoice because God has delivered us from this state. God has cured us of our hard heart. He has taken out that heart of stone and put in us a heart of flesh. He has transformed us by His amazing grace. And He has saved us from this dreadful estate in which we are in. And so we should praise Him and thank Him and honor Him for that great work that He's done in our lives. And we should show it by living and thinking in the opposite ways of of what we've seen in our text today. By thinking and living holy lives. Lives devoted to God and Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for the amazing salvation that we have in Christ that has delivered us from the state of the unbelievers around us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not walk as we've seen in our text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.